0: Now, you all know that there was peace and quiet in the South before the NAACP started stirring up trouble. But what you don't know is that this so-called advancement of colored people is now and has always been nothing but a communist front headed by a Jew who hates America and doesn't make any bones about it either. Well, the commies didn't waste a second. They knew, only too well, friends, that the quickest way to cripple a country is to mongrelize it. So they poured all the millions of dollars the Jews could get for them into this one thing, desegregation. They went to the courts. Now, Judge Silver, who is a Jew and is known to have leftist leanings... Who says so? The record says so. Look it up. Abraham Silver, for one thing, belongs to the Quill and Pen Society which receives its funds indirectly from Moscow. So what did the judge do? Went right ahead and ordered integration for the Caxton High School. Your mayor and the governor could have stopped it, but they didn't have the guts. All right. Now you may think the problem simply whether we're going to allow 10 Negroes to go to our schools. That's only a small part of it. I'm in a position to know because the Patrick Henry Society has studied the whole thing. The real problem, whether you like it or not, is whether you're going to sit back and let desegregation spread throughout the entire South. And it's an indisputable fact that there could be no other result. The Negroes will literally and I do mean literally, control the South. The vote will be theirs. You'll have black mayors and black policemen the way they do in Chicago and New York already. Like is not a black governor and black doctors to deliver your babies, if they find time, that is. And that's the way it'll be. Did you ever stop to think about that? when you let those ten enter your school, did you? Now let me ask you. Do you people want niggers taking over? No! No. And are you willing to fight this thing down to the last ditch and keep fighting until it's over? And I'm willing to fight with you Why, Mr. Kramer? Why? Because I'm an American, sir, and I love my country. And I'm willing to give my life, if that be necessary, to see that my country stays free, white, and American!
1: The following film podcast frequently contains adult content, including foul language and descriptions of adult situations. Spoilers for the films discussed occur often. Listener discretion is advised. Now take it away, Dr. Rausch.
0: (laughs) They must be destroyed on sight!
1: All right, welcome to They Must Be Destroyed On Site, episode 156. I'm your host Lee. No matter how much you hate me, blame me, and want to shoot me, it wasn't my fault, Russell. And I'm joined by my co-host Daniel. Doctors got a name for it, but they can't cure it, Harper. How you doing, sir?
2: I'm doing great. Thank you. <laughs> and I do have that affliction, unfortunately. Uh, there's only there's only one treatment for it ultimately. <laughs>
1: You have to become a white supremacist.
2: Yeah. Well, I was yeah. going to say cunnilingus, but, you know.
1: I thought the thing the doctors had the name for, I was paying you a compliment here, actually, that uh, you're you're a charming individual. With, oh, uh, that good one. Good morals. Right.
2: right. Yes. Yes.
1: Yes. But, I mean, you know, if you want to. I was turn... going
2: more on the, like, you know, clearly, like, the condition she has is nymphomania. And uh, the uh, only cure for that is maybe she just needs better sex rather than more. But that's not actually how Nymphomania works. It was it was a stupid joke. We have officially beaten it into the ground. It's fine.
1: We're finishing off our little look at both black exploitation and like pseudo or proto black exploitation films. We're going to be looking at Roger Corman's *The Intruder* from 1962. But before we get into that, we do have quite a bit of uh, feedback to get to, so I'm going to jump right into it. Apologies if I pronounce your name incorrectly. Perhaps Daniel knows this person and can correct me because they say Daru McElsey, uh says I got into. They must be destroyed on
2: site listening uh, to Daniel Oy Spaceman. I'm not sure I know. I'm not sure I know the person. But if, if, if I am supposed to know them, then I apologize. But
1: yeah, It's it's like McAlec or McAleese or something like that. Just let me know if I fucked up your name. I apologize. You know how I am of pronouncing things. I'm terrible. Anyway, he says, really digging the podcast as I'm a movie freak, especially an odd movie lover. Just going through the back catalog and just loving it. Cheers, guys. Thank you very much. Awesome. Yeah, I'm he had sure. another comment um, on our hard bodies episode where he was. Uh, at first, I thought I'd blown his eardrums out because the sound levels were probably bad on that <laughs> edit. <laughs> but uh, now he's just surprised that we threw a bunch of like '80s music into the uh, yep. soundtrack. So yeah, yep. Mike Murphy, new brand new podcaster, Mike Murphy of the Exploitation yeah. Film Podcast. Yeah. Uh, I bet that's
2: I bet that's a show that goes places. You know. Yeah
1: uh he said he had fun listening to your truck turner episode guys regarding the feedback right out prior to the film discussion whoever compared they must be destroyed on site to the projection booth was clearly drunk they must be destroyed on site is far better well thank you very much i don't know why mike is trying to suck up to us uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe he wants us
2: of... he wants us to to promote the uh, exploitation film cast and get our massive audience over onto uh, his yeah. new project that's probably what it is probably i'm understand. sure it's completely cynical <laughs> uh, but thank you. Oh, and I know what happened. I mentioned the Zodiac again, and suddenly Mike Murphy just shows up. <laughs> yeah,
1: that must be it. He's talking about my daddy.
2: <laughs> um,
1: And we will actually uh, get a fucking promo for your show, Mike, so we can play it. But uh, I will uh, link your new podcast in the show notes so people can check it out. They, they probably already clearly heard about it, but um, just in case there's one or two who think BB and BC is dead and you're not doing anything else. Our friend Gary Hill. A fellow podcaster from cinema beef uh, in regards to the intruders great film deserves a good release. Agreed. We'll get into the releases of course, later on, but do we have Jeff Williams chiming in saying recommendation of the week, play it as it lays a very dark, unflinching and unmelodramatic look at the private life of a woman in the filmmaking business Tuesday weld and Anthony Perkins star in this Frank Perry film as an indie actress and her gay producer friend, who have been chewed up and shat out by their unfulfilling lives. Didn't think Perry could get bleaker than the swimmer, but he does with this or more Weld and Perkins. Also check out the offbeat Pretty Poison. Hmm, that sounds good. Yeah, definitely. Definitely have to look into that. Thank you very much, Jeff. And then finally, Cameron Sullivan comes in and he says, Corman often remarks how he later snuck in his social commentary into far more marketable exploitation films. Would love to hear your guys' take on his recurring themes, and then he says, "Also, maybe discuss Shatner's other unusual roles, like White Comanche and Denny Crane, etc. From uh, Denny Crane, that's Boston Legal, or yeah, yeah, that's the, uh, um, isn't that's, it? That lawyer show that also yeah, had yeah, like uh, Jerry Ryan on it."
2: Yeah, or that show ran forever. I don't know, like '90s television. Sorry, I didn't realize I was gonna have to like dig into the memory banks on that one.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, you, you threw us for a curveball there, Cameron. Um,
2: David Kelly, I think, was the producer I was trying to name there. Anyway,
1: as far as Corman's sort of throwing social commentary into his films, now I'm I'm at a loss to give like a lot of specific examples here, but for the most part, Corman has always been upfront about the fact that he would often just do the thing of think of a title and then build a film around it, you know, get get a title and get a poster and then build a film around it and spend as little money as possible making that film and just make shit tons of money. And that formula actually worked for him except for the intruder, which we'll get into as well. Later on, he would often say that he would be more interested in trying to make a workable story around the concept of the title. And then if he saw some angle he could throw in there with some social commentary, he would but it's not necessarily something that was primarily on his mind in most of his films. In fact, I think the intruder might be the only sort of exception to the rule there for his stuff.
2: Well, I I mean, I think a lot of it is like this stuff that's kind of going on in the culture around that time. I mean, this is a hugely tumultuous period. Clearly he's a filmmaker. And I mean, we've, I mean, I've talked about this, you know, a number of times over the, over the course of, you know, what Mm -hmm. the 85 years we've been doing this podcast, but um, (laughs) you know, there, when you're not using a lot of money, and, you know, you, as long as you kind of deliver the thing that, you know, the schlocky, you know, the special effects or the, the gore or whatever, you can kind of get away with a lot of stuff. And I suspect mm-hmm. that there's some there's some buried stuff that just kind of bubbles out from this consciousness. Because clearly, you, you watch this and you kind of see some of the other stuff he's produced, even the stuff we've already covered. And there's clearly, like, some ideas, you know, kind of buried underneath it. But it's, it's not, you know, it feels less sort of Gene Roddenberry, like, sort of like, oh, we're going to make that, like... Stuff with like a social conscience as much as it's yeah you know you're just not- gonna tell the story and it's gonna have like kind of cool women in it and it's gonna like kind of be about teenage angst or it's gonna be about you know because it's just sort of like a thing that's just kind of happening it's just sort of sometimes that comes about from the kind of like quickness of, of script writing and uh, filmmaking mm-hmm. too is that you don't really have time to like sort of sort of edit all that shit out of it you just sort of <laughs> you know get it out there and then suddenly well it's just it, it was just there you know so um, yeah that's Kind of my yeah. very broad take. I mean, I would like to do some more Roger Corman stuff, you know, and and kind of examine that a little bit more closely. Because looking at his filmography, there were a few that looked like, oh, that might actually be really interesting that I haven't seen. So, well, I mean, man, he did. He he directed fifty odd films
1: on his own, right. and he's produced over four hundred films. Right. So there's a lot of stuff there. It's like it's kind of hard to narrow down specific examples of where maybe he was really going for something. Right. Um, but. Yeah, for the most part, and I think he'll fully admit this, that uh, unless he's trying to, you know, pump up his own image, which he's definitely done many times over, for the most part, it's it's kind of like a secondary or even tertiary kind of concern of his is, oh, if we can throw some social commentary in there, then we'll do it. I mean, he's usually just interested in what's trendy at the moment. When they were making Rock and Roll High School, he initially wanted it to be like a disco theme thing, but at that point disco was pretty much dead and so then it ended up being a movie centered around the ramones yeah i mean he i think he directed the latest remake of death race that came out like a couple years ago hmm. and there are some like little comments here on mass media and corporate culture and even like a couple shots at donald trump but they're pretty weak sauce, and and for the most part, they're not really far removed from what he was doing in the original Death Race two thousand. So. Yeah, I
2: mean, it's a lot of times they just kind of throw in a couple of like broad comments or whatever, and it's just kind of you know gloss like, mm-hmm. awesome, on you know just whatever. Um, as for Shatner's
1: unusual roles, Jesus Christ, he's. He's, he's done had so many a really weird.
2: long career.
1: I mean, yeah, he's, he's
2: been acting for like 50 years at this point. You know,
1: I have seen White Comanche, and we need to do that with uh Burt Reynolds, uh, Navajo Joe as a double <laughs> because uh, um,
2: uh, Paul Newman's ombre. <laughs> <laughs> because I put that one on for 15 minutes, went, yeah, no, I'm not ready for this one.
1: <laughs> so, with Navajo Joe, you know, they they tan up Burt Reynolds and put some like Brown face on him, or whatever, to try right, to make him look like an Indian, you know, right? They don't do any of that with William Shatner and White Comanche. In White Comanche, he plays a set of twins uh, who are like half Comanche, half white. And one of them's this vicious, raping Comanche Indian war chief, and the other's this cowboy. And they right. come in conflict with each other. And Shatner doesn't Indian himself up at all, playing the Indian side of, uh, of the thing. I,
2: I think it sounds like what he should have done is just gone straight Italian. Just, you know, because playing it with an Italian accent would make it more accurate to the depiction of native Americans and films of that era.
1: Well, I mean, it was a Italian Western and, um, he should, he
2: should just like have a plate of spaghetti at all times and being like, that's a spicy meatball. I'm
1: a native American. (laughs) (laughs) Like if you could find the Italian dub of that, that would be pretty funny. I think, but, um, (laughs) Yeah, uh, actually, I'm determined now we're going to do White Comanche and Navajo True. Joe just because that'll probably be one of the most racist episodes
2: we ever, <laughs> we we've ever done. Do. Some, we've done some racist episodes, you know. But... Yeah. yeah, White <laughs>
1: Comanche is pretty horrific. I seem to recall like the couple episodes of the lawyer show he was on that Denny Crane was like a silly, awful human being who was yeah, suffering was, from Alzheimer's or something.
2: He was kind of like a, I mean, all of those shows from that era were kind of, you know, all those David Kelly shows were kind of quirky workplace comedies. And it was like, mm-hmm. yeah, Boston legal or whatever. And it was like, we're the lawyers and we take on quirky cases. And, you know, it was kind of, I don't know. I, I was, you know, I never, I never, I didn't, I never quite followed it. I think he came on like after a couple of years too. Yeah, he did. You no know? yeah. So, uh, you yeah, know, uh, Shatner said, you know, he's had a really long career of just kind of doing a lot of like really shitty TV, mm-hmm. but also kind of doing like some some pretty good work. He was in like Third Rock from the Sun. And he played like the big commander or whatever on that, and you know he's just he's just kind of been a guy who's just been on TV forever. Um, he's and, a you
1: know. he's he's a complicated guy because he's yeah. a guy who openly rejected Star Trek nerdism early on, and then eventually yeah. kind of went with the tide. Whether he truly embraces it or just realizes, hey, this is where my money is now, that's up to debate, I guess. But he's never been afraid of making fun of himself, by the looks of things. Like he kind of realizes what a goof he is. Right. Like one of one of my favorite guest roles. I've ever seen Shatner in. And and, th- and this is my favorite episode of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. This is the one he showed up in playing himself, where they were in a dentist's office and they got under the influence of the laughing gas and where you know everything was all of a sudden funny to ev- everybody in the room because they were all exposed to the gas. And it was just... It's still one of the funniest moments I've seen on a TV sitcom. And oh, that's awesome. <laughs> it is really no, I good. I haven't
2: seen that. I haven't seen that. No. <laughs> I, I, uh, just, I, if we're going to do Shatner, let's do uh, Tech War. Tech we, War. Uh, The uh, the, that was a series of uh, made-for-TV movies that I kind of loved as a teenager when I saw them, like on USA or whatever.
1: Did that not come out like around the same time where every other cheaply produced sci-fi property had a TV series? That was like around the same time that Alien
2: Nation had their
1: TV movies? yeah, it was all
2: like, that was when I was like 13, 14, and so I watched like a ton of that crap, and I have fond memories of them, honestly, you know, Uh, so a, a bunch of them are on YouTube, or at least like a couple of them oh. on youtube so i was i was kind of like you know this might be kind of a fun thing for us to do at some
1: point you know i, I would i would not be opposed to delving into tech war and see because yeah. i know he wrote the books right he
2: wrote the books yeah and yeah. Uh, apparently the books are kind of goofy fun if you're just sort of into that sort of sci-fi bullshit you know didn't and, he uh, write
1: a bunch of non-canonical uh, star trek books as well with i think hidden?
2: he he wrote, you know, some of this, one of these like alternate universe things or whatever. Like he's written a ton of stuff. Like, I yeah. mean, he, he stays busy. You gotta, I mean, he's kind of a racist, sexist dickhead, but you know, like he's, <laughs> he's not an untalented guy, you know, and uh, unfortunately I, I think he kind of, you know, spoiler alert, I think he might have peaked in 1962, but uh, you know, we can, <laughs> you know.
1: <laughs> yeah, but, uh, there we go. Thank you guys for the comments. Keep them coming. We like having a big comment section. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you keep sending us enough comments. We're going to put it behind the paywall and then you'll have to yeah. pay for the Patreon.
2: Uh. <laughs> we'll do a letter segment at the end after we do that way. Uh, our fans won't, our fans on YouTube yeah. now, have to, you know, like post, <laughs> you know, like time goes at the bottom.
1: Right. So anything you watch in the last little while, Daniel?
2: Yeah, I did. Um, knowing we had Corman coming up, I, uh, mm-hmm threw up a bucket of blood, which I hadn't seen in a long time. Um, Yeah. My wife really likes that. You know, I, that's a, I mean, it's like an hour long and it's Mm -hmm. like completely justifies its length. It's a really fun little movie. I I really enjoy it. Um, I love Dick Miller's performance. I love the the way that the, uh, the art world is portrayed in this kind of hippie, you know, mm. kind of beatnik culture, yeah, it's it's art culture. And they don't really like him, and then suddenly it's like, oh, so so realistic here. Yeah, You're so your life-like, are so shit. amazing, so lifelike. And it's, you know, why is there a knife in the side of the cat? Well, uh, it just, it just is. You know, mm. <laughs> I, I really enjoy that film. I think it's I think it's a lot of fun. Again, it's an hour long. If you haven't seen it, you should definitely check it out. It's uh, it's it's all over the place. I'm sure it's on YouTube. I caught it on Amazon Prime. It was a pretty good print. So like, uh, no, it's. You know,
1: it's good, and the the remake is even pretty good, um, which has uh, what's-his-name-from-weird-science and all those other... Uh... Um, Anthony Michael Hall? Anthony Michael
2: Hall, yeah. Awesome, I haven't seen that version. It was, so... Yeah, it was
1: from the 90s remake. Well, Ooh, that's...
2: it's got Anthony Michael Hall in it. You know, that's,
1: yeah, because yeah. Corman, uh, he had a lot of his properties remade over and over again like two or three times. <laughs> Some right. uh, Humanoids from the Deep has two or three remakes. Piranha nice. has several remakes, you know. <laughs> Sometimes, one, uh, one thing oh, I'll just mention that I rewatched Kong Skull Island. I, I re-watched oh, yeah. it last night. Liked it even more than the first time I watched it. Uh, that that movie's a lot of fun. It actually is. It's
2: just I, yeah. You, you said that I haven't watched it yet. I, I'm gonna have to check it out. I, I feel like I'm so burnt by the Peter Jackson King Kong, which I didn't oh, even hate that, but it was just kind of like oh, like watch, This is you know? kind of what you were hoping
1: the Peter Jackson King Kong might be. 'Cause oh, it's just much more fun. It's it's an adventure yeah. film. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's all Skull Island. It's it's not uh Beauty and the Beast and that sort of tired played out shit. It's just right. fucking King Kong fucking up monsters and shit. Like nice. Good stuff. And John C. Riley, he's he's awesome in that film. He just steals the whole fucking film.
2: I, I'm kind of. I feel really bad that John C. Riley has sort of become the comedy guy that he has. Mm-hmm. Or like he became Will Ferrell's buddy. Like yeah. not that. Like he does it fine, but like he's he's a really phenomenal actor. And I mean, particularly if you look at you know like the early work he did with P.T. Anderson and like how mm-hmm. phenomenal he is in that. And I think he just kind of transitioned into you know kind of being the big, the the cartoon character. And uh, like it's it's a shame that we haven't gotten more. Uh, really nice, subtle performances out of him because he's he's really, really good. So Yeah, yeah. and this is good, too, because it, it sort of skirts
1: that. There's the subtle, dramatic performance, and then there's the funny part, too, because he's basically just this guy who's been stranded on Skull Island for like 25 years or something like that. <laughs> nice. his, his plane crashes during World War II on Skull Island. And then when the, the current team of people come to Skull Island to do a exploration of it or whatever, they run into him. He's like, holy shit, people. And I'd really like to, you know, he's asking about baseball scores and stuff like that. And uh, he, he runs into the soldiers who show up and is, you're a good bunch of guys, good bunch of boys to be with. We're all going to die on this island. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's awesome.
1: Yeah, it's really good stuff. So we're going to take a quick break and we'll play some music and some podcast promos. And we're going to come back with The Intruder.
0: Broadcasting from the cursed Earth, the Psycho-Semanticast. Let us face, without panic, the reality of our time. The fact that atom bombs may someday be dropped on our cities. And let us prepare for survival by understanding the weapon that threatens us. To have uh, an ignorant, uh, thin-skinned megalomaniac
1: uh, who... Sends off the, you know, Twitters at 3 a.m. if somebody angered him.
2: The neo-Nazis turning up in Washington, DC to have a rally saying Heil Trump.
0: We talk about politics. I knew I couldn't trust you corporate Greaseballs! We talk about movies. You can't come down here and arrest people just because of what they look like. Are you crazy? Oh, oh, oh. But that's police harassment! We talk about political movies. We're in trouble. The whole world's in trouble. They're all around us and we never knew them. You can only see them with these special glasses.
2: The Psycho-Semanticast. <gasps>
1: All right, The Intruder from 1962.
0: This man, take a good look at him. He's a specialist. He knows exactly how to turn this quiet town into a hell of violence. The Negroes will literally, and I too mean literally, control the South. Are you willing to fight down to the last ditch? and keep fighting till this thing is over! The Intruder! He made the sleepy town of Caxton his town for his reason. He played on their fears and their hatreds. This town became a headline for The Intruder. He brought an end to innocence. He exploited a woman's weakness. He turned neighbor against neighbor how come you walked that bunch of black niggers to our white school? I don't see anything I do is any business of yours. And sooner or later it would happen. He would make it happen. Over here. <laughs> you were alone with a white girl in the basement of the school, but you didn't try to do anything. Is that what you expect us to believe, nigger? It's a
1: a.k.a. I Hate Your Guts, Shame, and The Stranger. It is directed by Roger Corman, written by the great Charles Beaumont, who is a prolific short story uh, writer of horror and sci-fi, did a lot of screenplays for movies, did a lot of classic Twilight Zone episodes as well. Uh, he also wrote the
2: novel on which this is based, yes. and I am definitely going to read that. Like I, I put that on my to-read list, definitely.
1: He was one of those really rare, talented guys who unfortunately died very young. It was right after this movie, actually, like the the year a year later or so, that symptoms of some sort of dementia started to come on, and he might have also had a couple other diseases that that came on that degenerated him and aged him like drastically to the point where he died at age thirty eight. Like yes. just a, yeah, just. Yeah, sucks. But he was one of these guys who was really like idolized and respected by his, his contemporaries, Ray Bradbury, and several of the writers that actually appear in this, inc-
2: Incl- along including with Bo- Beaumont. Beaumont appears in yeah. yeah.
1: William Shatner stars as Adam Kramer, Frank Maxwell as Tom McDaniel, Beverly Lunsford as Ella McDaniel, Robert Imhart as Averne Shipman, Leo Gordon as Sam Griffin, and Leo Gordon was in a movie we have covered before, Kitten with a Whip. Oh, nice! Um, Yeah, Charles Barnes is Joey Green. Charles uh, Beaumont is Mr. Patton, and
2: you can see him there, like pivotal role. Yeah,
1: yeah, and you can see how kind of old he looks there. Yeah, yeah, he's only like. 3031
2: 30, 30, or something. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah.
1: Catherine Smith is Ruth McDaniel. Writer George Clayton Johnson is Phil West. Uh, he did a lot of Twilight Zone. He wrote Logan's Run uh, with uh-huh. a, the other writer in this, uh, William F. Nolan. And he also wrote the uh, novel adaptation of Ocean's Eleven. Oh, nice. <laughs> the, yeah. <laughs> William F. Nolan. As Bart Carey, uh, of course, did Logan's Run. Uh, He did the screenplay for Burnt Offerings. He also did a treatment on Who Goes There that was not picked up and used for the eventual uh, The Thing. No. Uh, But he did do a treatment on it. And Janine Cooper as Vi Griffin and Phoebe Rowe as Miss Lambert. And we have a synopsis here from IMDb. A man in a gleaming white suit comes to a small southern town on the eve of integration. His name is Adam Kramer. He calls himself a social reformer, but his aim is to incite the people against letting black children into the town's white school. Soon he has the white citizens of the town worked up. He thinks he's leading them, But a man he befriends and immediately betrays knows better. The people have become a mob. The black leader of a church and a white newspaper editor soon feel its wrath. But after a false accusation against a black student, Adam Kramer may find the people are totally and permanently out of his control. From Jay Sperlin. I think we've read Jay Sperlin's synopses before on this thing. Yeah. uh, That's not bad. Not bad. Yeah. So this is the first time you watched this, Dan, and uh, what's your general thoughts?
2: I had uh, I had put this on like a year ago or so, um, just uh, kind of idly, it, you know, showed up and it was on Amazon Prime or whatever, and I was like, oh, that looks interesting, you know. So this is not my first time watching it, although I think I like kind of forgot about it when we did our best of the year list that year because oh yeah, this would absolutely. Belong on on that kind of list. Same here. So I, I actually uh, bought a DVD of this 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 week just to uh, just so I can own it. You know, I was mm-hmm. like, okay, fine. This is an amazing film. I mean, this is one of the best films. I mean, I I've been following you know sort of institutional racism and white nationalists for mm-hmm. for a while now. This is one of the best films about this topic that exists. I like Black Klansmen, this spike Lee film. And this is so much better than that. And it was made in 1962. Mm-hmm. This has the clan bombing a church before the 16th Street church bombing. Like right. four years before that actual event. This is pre like Civil Rights Act. This is like made right at the height of it. And it's almost photoreal because it's actually shot in a place where like this stuff was actually happening a bunch of the people like listening to these segregationist speeches were actual like people who supported segregation (laughs) yeah who thought that uh adam kramer is the hero of the film there is a lot of really like amazing stuff in this and uh, it also just works as a film i think it's really got a pretty intricate plot it's got some really interesting characters it's got some really nice things to say I think all the performances are, are amazing. Um, in mm-hmm. fact, um, a lot of these actors um, are non-professional actors; they're just like townspeople. And yet, um, in particular, Charles Barnes is Joey Green, just I mean, basically a kid in this town, and he is amazing in this. And uh, again, small role, but it's pivotal. And it's you know, if he, if his performance doesn't work, then the movie itself doesn't work. It's just I don't know. I it's it's hard to. I'm, I'm trying to kind of skip over it without kind of going into too much <clears> detail. <throat> but I I fucking love this film. I think it's. I think it's amazing.
1: Nice. Same here. This is basically a first time watch for me. Like I've known what this film was about for ever. And I've definitely seen bits and pieces of it here and there, but uh, I'm going to count this as a first time watch this year. Yeah. I
2: think, I think, I think we're both going to do that this time. So, you know, yeah.
1: So this is on the best of list already. I mean, you go into it expecting, okay, it's going to be a Roger Corman cheapy and it's not going to look that great. And it's going to be, Full of hammy performances, but it's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's shot well, despite there's a lot of shitty copies of it out there. It still looks pretty good, even in that form. Yeah. Like it's got that very stark noirish black and white kind of thing going on. Well,
2: it's almost that sort of Italian realist, black and white, you know, sort, mm-hmm. of, sort of idea, you know, because it, it looks like it's it looks shot like 16 millimeter. I don't think it's shot 35, and so it, it has uh-huh. this, so like slightly grainier, kind of more documentary feel to it. You yes. Know? Um it feels a little bit more like like a Battle of Algiers or something, you know, kind of like yeah. that shot. Yeah. It's it's got a similar kind of look and feel to that. Which uh, I mean in this case it's just because like Corman didn't have the money for real. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. like you know it is you know necessity brother of invention and all that, but you
1: know yeah. Again we run into another movie that sells the weather perfectly it sells the mm-hmm. heat of this town. Yep. It captures as much as uh, a lot of Southerners today would probably try to protest this, and they definitely did back in the day, I think it perfectly captures the small town mentality for the most part. Yeah. Uh, it, it just happens to capture a small town mentality that's deeply embedded by uh, racism through generations.
2: Yeah. Um, also shows I mean, this, this could be, this could be the town where I grew up, honestly. Like yeah. I grew up in the deep south. This I grew up, you know, twenty years, you know, twenty thirty years later was kind of when I was growing up there, and I grew up in a little bit more of like a suburban town as opposed to sort of like this kind of environment. Mm-hmm. But a lot of this like looks like people I could have known as a kid, N- no question in my mind.
1: And this one even does a lot of the same things that say like uh, "tick tick tick" does, mm-hmm. where it <clears throat> looks at both sides of the town. You see the white community, you see the black community, you see some of the black community is resistant to this change as well you know they mm. don't necessarily want integration like the uh the old grandfather character who's sitting on the porch tells the the kids who are going to the school you negroes going to cause some of us niggers to get killed and you know he <laughs> makes a distinction between those two words negroes right. and niggers right yeah i Love. It's kind of kind of hard to talk about this film without like. <laughs> oh, I mean, this movie you, you says know. this movie says more racial epithets than uh, most black exploitation films do. Yeah, it throws it out there. The first five minutes, there's an old lady saying. I don't like those niggers coming to our school or whatever. Like, right? It throws it right in your face. It's it's not. Right. And, it, and, and, and
2: it's it. very much like when you when you hear it, it's very much like this is like that's what it, that's what a, that's what she would have said. Like, I mean, no. that's that's the character. That's you know, it doesn't feel. I mean, it it's shocking, but it's shocking in the way that it's it's just like, oh yeah, you know, of
1: course. And then I mean, we can't let them, we
2: can't let them in here, you know.
1: And I mean, in 62, it definitely, I don't think it would be as shocking as it is now. I mean, now the word is so taboo in so many uh, different sectors of society. Back then, some white person saying that word
2: wouldn't necessarily be all that shocking. Well, like, even, mm-hmm. I mean, we watched um, 70s crime film. <laughs> One of your favorites. What's the um, Friends of Eddie Coyle? Friends of Eddie Coyle, and that's mm-hmm. got like a bunch of that kind of uh, a lot of the a lot of the harsher language in that, which is sort of made to make the uh, kind of the bad guys look like you know you know it's just meant to sort of color to make them kind of look a little more sinister. Or well, a also, they're, the edges, well also they're But also sort of working class, and you know, all that kind well, of stuff. well,
1: they're and, yeah, they're working class gangsters, and that's right. kind of like in their own little fraternity. They have no problem saying that shit all the time, right, right?
2: Exactly. Yeah, no, I'm not trying. I mean, I'm just saying, like, uh, even ten, ten, twelve years mm-hmm. later, you're you're still kind of using it, and it's kind of used in a slightly different way. Here, it's just, I mean, it's just part of the part of the texture of the of the world that you know, you know, if this is shot in like southeast Missouri. I mean, this is this is not a foreign word to the actors who are appearing in this film, right. like at all, you know. And, uh, you know, it is just, a. I feel like that's part of the power of the film is that it sells it as a, just sort of part of a lived reality. You know, it, mm-hmm. it isn't trying to necessarily rub the audience's nose in it. It's just, well, yeah, of course, it's just you know yeah, no,
1: the 70 year old woman's dropping the end bomb in the first five minutes of the movie and yep. she's your charming old grandmother character yeah, at the same time it's like exactly. she's so likable you know and then yeah. she says that it's like oh grandma why'd
2: you say that <laughs> when, you, when you gotta go there you know And then later <laughs> on you get the other old guy the i guess he's um he's the stepfather and, he's the stepfather, or father or father-in-law
1: yeah. i think
2: father-in-law yeah yeah so um and he's, you know, I mean, like he. Sorry, spoiler alert. I mean, eventually, you know, he kind of comes out and is like, "Hey, if um, that boy had tried that, you know, when you know, twenty years ago, um, he would have gotten the noose, and I would have been the one pulling the pulling the rope, you know." And uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's becomes like this. This just isn't the way we do things here, you know. He, and, he's like, that's an interesting character too. He's just a small character, but he's the father in law of the
1: uh, newspaper guy. Yeah. Who who becomes one of our heroes in the film, and he is genuinely insulted by the idea that you're going to make me look bad in front of my friends if they find out that you're <laughs> one of those end lovers. You know, if like they, if
2: they, if they find out that you're like promoting race mixing, uh-huh. you know, you're going to make me look bad in front of my buddies, and he and that's, he, that's he's so genuinely... Much- that's yeah. so much of the way this gets enforced in real life. It's not, mm-hmm. it's not like, you know, like you don't have to, you know, you can believe what you believe, but like we, we got to have standards here, you know? Yeah. And this isn't just like sort of this overtly racist, you know, like small town Hicks southerners, which I think the film mostly avoids that stereotype. I think you there's know, only,
1: uh, you know, honestly the, uh, I think the one character that really, well there's two characters that really portray that and that's two of the the writers doing doing the sort of their only roles and that would be william f nolan and uh, george clayton johnson because george clayton johnson's he's the one who's the like the wiry guy who's getting in in everybody's face you know right and and william f nolan is the guy with the glasses and the hat who's like the leader of the people like the local group he's not the Politician, He's the, like the sort of local guy who's at the different rallies and stuff. Right. Right.
2: But yeah, I mean, even with them. Yeah. And even with them, it's not sort of pushed into like, you know, like the corn pone, you know, sort, mm-hmm. of, sort of idea. It's not, not like a, the guy from, again, from black Clansman, which again, I like, I like black Clansman, but you know, it definitely kind of gives us the like super dumb redneck, you know, racist character right. that we're supposed to laugh at this. This doesn't have that all of our virulent, awful racists are also people that we would otherwise like in our, in our our life. And you
1: know, uh, you and I have both grown up with these people and like we both from, come from small town backgrounds and that's just the way it is. It's just sort of beaten into them through a form of social engineering. Basically they're just raised. Well, yeah, we can't have them colored mixing with our white, Kids you know like that's right. just terrible, our newspaper man's wife she's racist she, and she and she's racist because of that kind of thing she's not necessarily a bad person she's just been institutionalized racism her whole life, and she doesn't even know why she doesn't like it right like she's just racist she well, doesn't even just, know she's why.
2: just she's just racist and she's like you know and, and when our our newspaper man you know starts you know because he is not he I really like his arc, right? Because he mm-hmm. begins the film not in favor of integration, but he's sort of like, well, this is the law, and this is, you know, and we have to obey the law because this is this is what we do. You know, we, we get along to get along, you know? Yeah. His wife is kind of, like, resistant to it, but is sort of, you know, like, just going to kind of support him or whatever. And then as the film goes on, I mean, as he kind of sees this, like, kind of evil unfolding, and he sees kind of what um, Adam Kramer, what, what Shatner's doing, he realizes that, you kind of have to make a decision to be on one side or the other. He makes the right decision and he pays a terrible price for it. Yeah, he loses play, an you know? eye. He loses an eye. I mean, he gets beaten and I mean, you know, mm-hmm. he kind of leaves the film at a certain point And you know, it's terrible. And even and even at that, his wife is like, "I don't know why you do this, but you're a good man. And if you're and if you believe in this as strongly, I guess, I guess it's the right thing to do." Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's the most he ever gets out of her. Which again is a very nuanced and realistic portrait of the way that you know, like. People people kind of come along with this like kicking and screaming sometimes. But, mm-hmm. you know, I love that he gets that. His his hero moment is just, I'm going to walk alongside you guys and, you know, help you to make sure you get there safely. And then immediately he, he pays the, you know, terrible price for it. It's, it's heartbreaking because, you know, like it would be easy for the film to make him the big hero that like he gets the big hero moment at the end, but no, it's, it it ends up being a a lot more um, interesting than that a lot more kind of complicated than that. And that it's not, this isn't a film with kind of one hero who, who saves the day and kind of one villain who gets his comeuppance. I mean, there is a little bit of, I mean, the villain gets his comeuppance, but it's still, you know, not total. It's not complete. I mean, he can move on to the next town and try it again or whatever, but it's all based on these kind of like, fairly intricate kind of readings of these characters and the way that these uh, just people work. And I mean, again, I want to read the novel and see, like, how much of this was, was there in the novel and to kind of see what was changed. Mm-hmm. Um, but once you know it was a book, it becomes clear, like, oh, yeah, they adapted this thing, you know, fairly quickly, and they they managed to. There's an intricate enough structure in the novel that they managed to actually replicate in the film. You know, you would never sit down and write a film this way, especially if you knew you were going to, like, shoot it all in three and a half weeks on $80,000, yeah. you know, because there's just too much stuff. There are too many people in it. There's too much. Like, when you sit down to write a movie, you think, okay, we're going to, like, gonna kind of have a pretty clear through line we're gonna have an antagonist and a protagonist and here you've got all these like little loops of like kind of characters like interacting with each other and these kind of like personal motivations get um entangled with the political motivations and a lot of it just kind of ends up being people thrust against each other and like clashing but not in a um, not in kind of a clear-cut way you know
1: uh, yeah I mean I think it makes the point of it, it takes more than just like it, it doesn't have the unrealistic one guy makes the change, you know. It's got to be a bunch of people coming together to fight the evil to actually make any sort of change and make it stand. Right. And some people are going to pay for it. Some people are mm-hmm. going to get beaten down, you
2: know. And at the end, of the townspeople, you know, they they kind of like real okay. So I guess this one Negro didn't rape a white girl, so I guess we can't, you yeah. know. Like it's not like they change their, Like they don't you know. They they just know that like it's it's discredited at this point. You know, they they, they just know. The, they, uh,
1: they just know they've lost another battle. That's all they know. Yeah. Because yeah. the, the politician character that Kramer initially sort of gets the support of is like, he, he, Kramer immediately goes to him and it's like, so, you know, you're not for this integration stuff, right? He's like, no, but I mean, they, it's the law. Now they won. We lost that battle. It's like, well, we could fight it. Yeah. And when he realizes that, oh shit, we lost this one. Then he immediately goes back to that mindset of, well, we lost, so we we just have to shut up and keep our true uh, feelings, you know, right. under under the collar kind of thing, and that's what the townspeople do. Like he sees the townspeople walking away, he's like, well, there goes the support, and Kramer's too weak to lead us to anything, so I'm going to cut ties with him real quick and save my own ass, basically, is what he's doing. <laughs> right. It it doesn't have that uh, overly optimistic... They've, they've come in and they've changed the town, and all of a sudden, all the white people love all the black people and all that shit. Right no, there's still people, and they still have these feelings. Some of them are changing, but a lot of them aren't. And fuck, 90% of this town or more is fucking deeply racist. Like, oh, they're yeah, a bunch oh, of yeah, fucking yeah. assholes.
2: yeah. And I mean those. So just a word about sort of the lynching sequence. Um, this is ripped from history in a lot of ways. Uh, now mm-hmm. um, you didn't see this kind of lynching in the '60s. This is this is this kind of ended mid to late '30s is kind of kind of the latest point you see at this. Mm-hmm. Around kind of World War II, the you know, after World War II it became uh lynchings were done more like kind of privately and the under the cover of night and that sort of thing. Like you right. didn't you didn't see these kind of big crowds. But certainly I mean, you can buy like postcards from the nineteen twenties and thirties that were like lynching scene, like they would lynch someone, and it would be picnics and like children hanging around. And um, I mean, I can give you some links to some of this stuff so you can actually see it. And I mean, it was just like, well, you know, we're there's this guy he committed this crime, and uh, we're going to take care of that. And this is just the way we do business here. And sometimes that was done with uh, the support of the uh, kind of local law enforcement, and sometimes it was in kind of over over the heads of local law enforcement. And sometimes the law enforcement got in the way, and they ended up you know getting beaten for it and all that sort of thing and you know there's a a great book that I will recommend at the hands of persons unknown which is uh, basically a history of lynching in the United States and particularly in the American Southeast you know great book if you do want to kind of know the history of that seeing it done in this way in 1962 it is a historical but it also like works on on the narrative level I mean it it does the thing that it it has to do but it's kind of one of those only kind of pieces that feels like ah that feels a little like not quite with its finger right on that button the way you know the rest mm, of the film because well, so much of the rest of the film is like just so specifically accurate to exactly what's happening and that that feels like kind of the big hollywood scene as opposed to you yeah know, you know. i mean kramer gets the
1: town and all riled up really quickly like it seems like it wouldn't necessarily go quick quite that fast and but at the same time there's a bit of a uh when you when you look at the crowd that gathers around for the lynching. A lot of them are really old, and it, it feels like a, a lot of these people probably participated in lynchings at some point, like 30 years prior. Oh, yeah, you know, sure. Oh, we're going you to got, get ourselves a good old lynching again. You know, you, you like, got the, you got yeah. that
2: guy with the rope, and he's just like home. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it's you know, and uh, Kramer's like, no, we need to. God, <clears throat> we got to talk about William Shatner here. I mean, you yeah. know shatner standing there kramer in that in that really beautiful white suit with his clean cut hair and everything it's fucking richard spencer man like yep. you know he shows up in this town i mean this could be charlottesville right he shows mm-hmm. up there just like no we don't need any violence for this we're just we're just political actors we're just gonna right. take him we're just gonna do the thing you don't have control over you 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 have a tiger by the tail here guy um and you are not nearly as much in charge of this as you think you are. And uh, he gets told off by our buddy, by kind of the, the guy who ends up being the big hero. Yeah, that's um, that's uh, Sam Griffin played Sam by Griffin, uh, Leo yes. Gordon. Leo yep. Gordon, yes, who... I looked at his uh, like Wikipedia page, and he had he also had a, a super long career. Oh yeah, uh, playing uh, tough guys in, in movies, and uh, was himself also a writer kind of later on, and wrote a mm-hmm. bunch of you know kind of Twilight Zone stuff, some Alfred Hitchcock, and, and et, cetera, et cetera. And I also served uh, five years. 5 years in San Quentin for armed robbery in the, um post war um which was just kind of one of those things like apparently he he uh, educated himself by like reading every book in the library and he's like this I love how soft-spoken he is I love how he's this like giant of a man but he's so gregarious and he's so kind mm-hmm. and I love that he's kind of like you know he's portrayed as this a little bit of a brute of a man like he likes to fuck this is a man who likes to fuck
1: this guy is this guy is almost he's kind of Robert E Howard Kind of yeah
2: like, yeah i can see that and yeah. uh, and i you don't get the sense that he's like sort of actively anti-racist as much as he's sort of actively anti like this guy mm-hmm. stirring up trouble and you know he's he he's somebody who was willing to do the right thing and and leaned into that in, in a way that he didn't have the sort of crisis of conscience that our newspapermen did yeah. but um at the same time this is this is this is more personal for him you know that and he knows what a
1: shitty little man shatner actually is exactly like he he he, because he's a salesman himself and he has that scene with shatner he's like you have a good technique and stuff but you have flaws and you're letting your flaws get in the way of your game and i see right through you you know your your sales pitch and then they have that scene with the gun (laughs) and shatner gets the gun and so he's like well shoot me and you know if, if you're gonna if you're gonna shoot me, shoot me. And I don't think he'll do it because you're a coward. And turns out Shatner is a coward. Yep. Uh, but at the same time, he's smart enough to have taken the bullets out of the gun beforehand. Yeah. Because... <laughs> <laughs> Little
2: insurance policy there, you know. Oh, I knew you weren't gonna shoot me. That's why I took the bullets out of the gun first. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it is beautiful. Him taking
1: the bullets out of the gun gives him the freedom to go through his entire thought process about Shatner and about what Shatner yep. did with his wife. And why his wife has all of a sudden run out on him because she was ashamed of herself for falling yep. for this braces piece of shit. Yep. Um, and he gets to say everything that's on his mind to Shatner. And he just breaks Shatner down and yep. just tears him into nothing. Like, he's like, you're nothing. You're a little man. You, you kind of get the feeling that, yeah, Shatner could probably go on. But it feels like he's definitely had his confidence curb stomped at this point. Oh, yeah, and,
2: and that's that's exactly what happens with these guys. Once they're, once they're shallow. I mean... These guys are bullies, right? Mm -hmm. And they're just, they're bullies who want to like get the mob to do their dirty work for them. You know, they're bullies with fucking words instead of like with fists, which is very common with bullies. And I mean, it does take strength to stand up to that it does take you know it takes tactics and strategy and there are all kinds of problems with that and i don't want to in any way diminish it but these people are terrified of the world around them and that's why they push into this and uh it's just such a great fucking movie it's so like on point
1: it's surprisingly great i think most people going into it will kind of think okay roger corman it might be okay it yeah. might, you know, it might be Black Klansman level, like the '60s Black Klansman level kind of thing. You know, yeah. you kind you of you expect that, but this balances like there's exploitation in it, but man, it balances it with the sensitivity and the unflinching look at the actual issues yep. that that Black
2: Klansman movie just couldn't hope to even fucking touch. No, no, and and I mean, we liked Black Klansman like mm-hmm. uh, overall. Um, and again, we're talking about the one from the '60s, not the one yeah. from. Um, you know, again, something I do, I, I mean, I think I highlighted this already, but just want to mention this. We're used to seeing these kind of films made, you know, a few years later, like five, 10 years later. So it's like, oh, and look at how terrible pre-civil rights era was. So look, at right. how, you know, this isn't that this was made at the time, you know, and it makes a big difference. So, like, Black Clansman is made in, I think, 66. That's, like, after the Civil Rights Act mm-hmm. passed, and when, like, you know, sort of the, the, the tide had turned. This was right at the center of it, you know, and that, that's so fascinating and courageous to me. Like, even going in and shooting this, they couldn't, like, <laughs> they couldn't actually, you know, tell the townspeople what the movie was really about. Or else they were, uh, you know, when, when, They shot in a couple different towns... Yeah, in one like, of the yeah, they,
1: towns they no, got the, run
2: up. The final sequence, like the uh, yeah. the the playground sequence, they, it's actually shot on three different playgrounds because they got they had to leave the first town once the uh, the townspeople kind of realized, and they moved to a different town, and then they got kicked out of that town as well. So they got three playgrounds to finally, like, get it shot. And apparently, if you look at it in detail, you can kind of tell it's it's three different locations. But yeah, it's there's, three different swings. and the, yeah, but, different. You're, but you're mostly just not kind of, like, following in that much detail. Yeah, so it doesn't doesn't
1: that. matter. But, yeah, they actually they, they came back to shoot in secret, and the sheriff got wind, and they actually finished the shot and got out of there before the sheriff showed up and, and, and caught them because they didn't yeah. want to film in there. But, uh, yeah, it is an amazing film.
2: Like, it's... Yeah. Seriously good, like it's Oscar-worthy good. Actually, no, definitely. I mean, it's. It, I mean, honestly, it's better than Oscar-worthy. For, mm-hmm. for frankly, you know. Yeah. I mean, I mean you know because the Oscars are so often this kind of neutered kind of nonsense but yeah. you know I guess you know like they do make good decisions I mean the apartment you know obviously uh, I I I say Oscar worthy in
1: the idea that like the actual ideals of the Oscars of like, like yeah, yeah, yeah. rewards to the greatest movies you know
2: <laughs> this could very easily be one of the best films of the year it was made like there there's no question that like if we went and like looked at films of 1962 this this would belong on like a top 10 list for sure yeah. and um we, we, we haven't really. I mean, I kind of brushed on Shatner. Shatner is phenomenal in this. He is. He's um, really good. It's, it's worth realizing that, like at this point, Shatner was basically like a Broadway actor who was like, Broadway, the TV, mm-hmm. kind of here and there. Yeah. Um, this was a very early performance for him and he is mesmerizing in this film and it, like, it kind of, I don't want to say unrecognizable, but you know, if you're expecting sort of like the traditional, like Shatnerian performance, this isn't that at all. I mean, yeah.
1: I mean, physically he looks like Captain Kirk at this point, cause he's got, uh, he's got like his first hairpiece firmly <laughs> set in at this point. Cause he was losing his hair in his twenties. Um, right. And and he had like a series of like hair pieces of, during his Broadway and TV acting in the fifties. But here he's he's got Captain Kirk hairpiece in, which served him well for like a decade or more. And mm-hmm. and he is really good here. Like he does have scenes where he goes big, but it never feels inappropriate. And it, it feels well reined in and and well done. Even though I think Corman at one point in interviews later on said that Shatner would kind of like hurt the film with his performance,
2: I totally disagree on that. No, like, no, he, he's he's amazing. I, I think there are a couple of points where he's a little bit showy, a little bit theatrical, right? Um, yeah, but that's mostly in the uh, like in the kind of big crowd scene where he like gives the speech and where he's like, you know. <laughs> but he's got he's got to sell the monorail. But he's got to gotta sell. Town. He's got he's selling the monorail exactly. You know he's. <laughs> He's doing the he's doing the bit. He's he's the music man coming in and and you know selling this particular version of racism. But I I do love. I mean, God, that scene is so well written, cause it's like it's like you know, and then <laughs> the, the communists who are also Jews, right? And the way he like elongates, who is a Jew, <laughs> and uh, I mean, you almost just,
1: see the brackets for. Him. Yeah, you can
2: see the whole like it's just it's like God. I watched it the first time. and went like. Holy fuck you could you know you could play this right next again, you could put a Richard Spencer speech or a David Duke speech and you could put right. s- sandwiches right there and just it's it's flawless in terms of like its structure and the way it does it i mean it's it's so I don't want this film to be better known because it would actually you would start to see online chuds with you know Adam Kramer as their like profile and shit oh, you know jesus i'm I'm sure it's out
1: there too some somewhere but.
2: Yeah, I mean, well, just I don't run across it, so you know it's not it's not prominent enough to be like an in joke for them yet. But you know, who knows? Well, if they they're watch the they're whole... gonna find this podcast episode, and then you know, yeah, if they if they watch the whole movie through, they just
1: proclaim him a cuck at the end, though. You know, <laughs> yeah, <word>. yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> oh, what he doesn't want to do violence?
1: Come on, man! What are you? Talking yeah, come about? on! What the fuck? Yeah. But I mean, you know that that is true of Richard Spencer's and and all those people because what like you look at the the fucking asshole who did the hit and run at Charlottesville. Uh, everyone turned their back on him. They, yeah, you know. I mean,
2: God, they they completely disavowed him immediately because, like, so he he did the quiet part loud. He actually like killed people instead. Mm-hmm. Of, you know, yeah, no, yep, no, agreed. Yeah,
1: no, this movie is fucking great. It 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 really does. Do everything, and it, it's still pertinent today. Like it, it, oh, yeah. does, it has not aged. You know, like it's, I mean,
2: it's 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 God, and there's so, like there's so like subplots we haven't even mentioned, like the uh, kind of the false rape thing, and like again, right. that's something that you know so many of these lynching stories were basically like there's some spurious story of a black man came in and like raped a white woman and this protection of white femininity becomes a justification for murdering the the hulking black brute and then you do that so you keep the other ones in line and all this super complicated stuff and if you look at sort of the history of these lynchings you know like in some cases yeah the rape was probably real and like Mm -hmm. but like that doesn't mean you just get to like as a tail and go like burn this person alive or whatever you know like yeah we have laws for a reason but then in other cases they get railroaded or whatever and it's it's i mean it's just this but it's so note perfect for the real thing and i mean i i just i want to take like to kill a mockingbird which is like not a bad film not a bad book not a bad film you know Mm -hmm. but this gets at like the core of that so much better than like oh the kind of speechifying you know
1: yeah, uh Charles Beaumont's
2: character here Mr. Patton is he yeah. supposed to be Jewish? In, in this film, I think. I maybe? mean, Beaumont himself isn't as far as I I mean I do yeah, like I know. The, the reading. Um I mean I don't think he's supposed to be Jewish. Although um our our buddy Leo Gordon there, he uh he orders a a, a Zenith, oh, which yeah. is oh yeah, you know, which is you know <laughs> I, I mean, my wife saw that and she's like, "Why is he ordering like that? Doesn't make any sense." Because you know, my wife is Jewish, you know, and she was <laughs> like, "She's like, oh, the Jew food in a movie, you know." I love that he orders it, and then like someone's like, "All right, scrambled eggs and coffee." <laughs> and it's, All right, Although fine, you know, right?
1: uh, he he could be much more like Robert E. Howard than I even imagined because Robert E. Howard. He was, you know, this Texas boy and he he had the ingrained sort of Texas racism in him, but yeah. he was, he was a guy who went across the border and indulged in, you know, Mexican culture and stuff like yep. that too. So, and picked up a lot of that stuff. So it could be kind of the same idea here. Like, I've been, I've been around some Jews before, you know, and I sure, like those yeah. people. You know, kind of I thing.
2: mean, um, certainly, um, so I mean, there, there are, you know, like pockets of, of Jewish people in the, in the deep South around this mm-hmm. time. Um, you know, and, uh they just sort of like had, you know, communities where they kind of stuck together so that they you know weren't uh, beholden to kind of like deal with the verily anti-Jewish yeah. culture around them. And um certainly somebody kind of working as a traveling salesman like for a pen company mm-hmm. like probably like had a Jewish boss. Let's just leave it at that in the in the in the deep <laughs> south it was it would not have been uncommon uh, at this point, you know. So mm. um, I forgot what
1: I was going to say about Mister Patton. <laughs> I don't, I don't no, know. No, oh,
2: no. I love the uh, I love that character as well because like yeah. he he gets what's going on and like again, so many like small moments of quiet heroism in this and yeah. like so much of there are people that I interact with who I am in awe of their courage and combating this on on the ground you know and uh, as, as it's manifesting today, but so much of it is just a little moment of just not letting them get to you and so much of it is like understanding that you're gonna get death threats and well, right. what else are you gonna do except you know what are you gonna do cower cower from it or you know just kind of brazen on and ultimately all you can do is just kind of keep moving on you know it's kind of amazing and and you see that in these characters you see that in like beaumont's character where you know he could have given this kid up or he could have said yeah. like we're gonna take you to um the sheriff's office and he's literally like he almost goes like straight up western, you know, <laughs> we're gonna get you to the next town, kid. <laughs> yeah. Know? Like it was um it was this very kind of uh are we gonna do three ten to Yuma now? Is this the <laughs> you know, like is this what you know the the structure of this? You know, we gotta get into the you gotta get him on the train. But uh but yeah no the any and he kind of has that hero moment. But um also it ends up not being really about him. It ends up being Joey Green kind of gets his, mm-hmm. his, his place in the in the sun and he gets his place in the movie and gets to have his own integrity and his own agency there. And um, I yes. do really love that. I mean, even films that are broadly sympathetic to, you know, kind of anti-racist messages and, and you know, kind of African-American actors and such typically don't... Um, I mean, this is not like he's not the lead in the film. As I mean, he might be in another film. Mm-hmm. It's still made in 1962 by like overwhelmingly white, you know, people. Yeah. Um, but he does get his moment, and I think that it's really, it's a really well earned one, and it's really well observed and really, um, I love that we get to see that in this film, and that it, he isn't just a victim of this kind of larger thing.
1: No, he he's one of the group of people who stand up against this shit, and I mean, he's he's one of the group of people from his own community that actually stands up instead of, well, maybe we shouldn't go to the white school or maybe we should just quiet down and let things be the way they are. You know, it's like the white folks ain't bothering us as much anymore. We ain't slaves anymore. We should just maybe shut up and duck our heads or whatever. Right.
2: And and he's like, no, fuck that. I mean, imagine, imagine if you were, imagine if you were in this town and you were, you know, it's like, well, I can go to the white school or I can kind of keep going where I'm going and you know try to get out of this town you know in a a couple of years when i graduate or try to kind of you know just be safe you know don't Mm -hmm. confront this if you don't have to for for some perception of like maybe not the greatest amount of gain like is this worth your life you know again that becomes such a you don't you can't blame people for feeling that way like i don't need Mm -hmm. this in my life but at the same time um, it never changes unless somebody makes that decision.
1: He, he goes to Los Angeles, gets a white girlfriend, grows a chin beard, and <laughs> somehow is somehow he gets the the Michael Jackson disease where his skin goes a little too pale, and <laughs> and then we got the sequel Black yeah, Klansman. Black
2: Klansman, yeah, no, that's
1: <laughs> the thing, yeah, no, <laughs> Um. Yeah, so I I don't know if we have anything else to say about this. I mean, Listen, we
2: we've talked about this film almost as long as the film lasts. So. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> it's got a great running time too. Um, yeah.
2: I mean, eighty four minutes is like perfect for this too because it 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 definitely doesn't wear it as welcome. You can imagine this being an hour forty five. Like you could like you yeah. could you could build more like character depth into this, but it like it just it gets in it gets out. It's super efficient. A lot happens in this film at eighty four minutes, and it's. Uh, not a second is wasted. It's compelling. It, it's not. It doesn't. It never feels like it's rushing, but it never feels like it's dawdling either. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah.
1: No, it's well paced. So this is one of the few 1960s low budget exploitation movies that actually lost money. I mean, it took Roger Corman and his brother like. A long time to even get this film made because uh, I guess a couple studios passed on it or whatever. So they actually had to fund a lot of it out of their own pockets. They actually re released it several times under the different titles to try to turn a profit. And they did not get a profit. Actually, they didn't get back into the uh, the black until there was a Charles Beaumont documentary made, The Twilight Zones Magic Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the money they paid Corman to use to, to have him on it and use some footage and stuff. Uh, $6,000 apparently eventually paid off the, uh, the budget on this. <laughs> so, so, if, uh, you know, it, it only took like 40, 50 years for this yeah. movie to actually, you know,
2: <laughs> finally, finally made its money back, but yeah.
1: I don't know. And uh budget for this was 80,000. Although I've always seen the source a hundred thousand, which would be like, you know, 20,000 for promotional probably kind of mm-hmm. thing. That Maybe. makes sense. DVD info for this. Your best bet is the Disney uh, Bonavista DVD from 2007. There is a Blu-ray in France, and if you can find that, apparently it's French subtitle, so it's probably still the English language version, if you can right. get, get a hold of that, but that's pretty
2: much it. And you said you bought the DVD? Yeah, I bought the DVD. Right. It was, I think, like 12 bucks on Amazon or something, and it was purely based on, like, I looked on... Uh, youtube and i couldn't really find a uh like a what I thought was a really good looking print and so I just bought it so. right uh did you notice if it was streaming anywhere um i did not i mean it it was not it wasn't streaming on amazon prime that i that I saw there's oh, a couple copies on YouTube.
0: There, I found a couple one... Of
2: copies, one with, like, I think, like, uh, Portuguese subtitles or something. Something like, like that, yeah. They looked, everything just kind of looked dark enough, and I had, like, enough lead time, and I was just, I'm going to want to own this anyway. So I just, I just, bought yeah. It, but. There, there's one on the, um, what is it? The uh, internet archive
1: or wherever the fuck it is. Uh, oh yeah, no, that and, makes sense. And it's not bad quality. Like it's watchable. It's about as good as any of those like 50 movie pack DVDs. You can buy out there, you know, kind of, if if you, if you're familiar with that, that's kind of what you get with it, but watch the YouTube version with the subtitles. It's still English language. So you just have to get past uh, the subtitles on it or whatever, but it, it yeah. it's, it's pretty good. I would recommend you buy it though. Cause it's a great movie. So Daniel, you have recently just appeared on a podcast, so talk about that and then also
2: tell people where they can find you on the interweb. Sure. Well, I uh, just recently appeared on the uh, Psychosemantic podcast, or Psychosemanticast, uh, <laughs> talking about whatever he's calling that. I don't think even he knows Darren Wilson. Does he really doesn't. That, yeah. Um, but uh, we talked about the 1998 film Pleasantville, uh, which was a film that meant a lot to me when I saw it when I was eighteen and which I had a lot more problems with upon revisiting uh you know to record that podcast. But still a film that was really worth talking about that covers some of the same some of the same ground we're covering tonight. Yeah. Honestly, you know, I feel like I've been watching a bunch of these films lately. It'll be nice to move away from it slightly in the in upcoming episodes. But um no that was a fun that was a fun podcast recording and that was a fun uh, I re listened to that. That's that's pretty good. So uh, go check that out. There'll be a note in the show notes, I think. Yeah. Um, so you can check that out. Um, and I think uh, I think I'm going to be doing that podcast again at some point. Um, Sweet, because it was fun. So I figured I figured you'd uh, get the bug to uh, jump on that one again. <laughs> yeah. I told him I'd do it every couple months. Like it's you know it's, it's mm. cool. he he only does like you know one every two weeks, so it's it's pretty easy to just kind of watch a movie and hop on that one. I think so that's I mean. yeah i i figured you'd you'd get uh get
1: something out of that uh, he invited me on it as well but uh i'm a little less interested in talking about politics when it comes to talking yeah. about movies as yeah. than you are so uh sure. i'm kind of i'm kind of wondering if if i'd be a good fit for that podcast but uh, um
2: and where else can people find you, did you say? You can find me? No, I didn't. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Daniel Lee Harper. Um, I follow Nazis and neo-Nazis and like people who worship serial killers. And uh, <laughs> they are uh, really disgusting, awful human beings. And they um, do come after me occasionally, as happened this evening. So, you know, that's the oh. way it works. Um, I was just on a another podcast. I, I just did a, a live stream called Queer Transmission, uh, where they had discovered my other major podcasts, I don't speak German, where I talk about these things with our buddy Jack Graham. The person who runs that podcast had discovered my other podcast, and it's, or that live stream discovered I don't speak German, and invited me to kind of come on and kind of talk about stuff for, you know. And um, then everybody else who was supposed to be on that canceled, so I ended up just kind of talking for an hour and 15 minutes. And uh, fucking Nazis invaded that stream. So, like, oh. great, great job. Like, it was uh, almost instantaneously, too. So, you know, congratulations. Sad to, little people. You know yay youtube but um yeah yeah, you can also check that out a queer transmission on um on youtube uh, which sweet i literally finished recording about 30 minutes before we started recording this so it's up and yeah that's where you can find me lots of various things that i do talking into a microphone for no money you can also pay (laughs) me if you'd like to i do have a patreon Uh, and you can find us at
1: tmbdos.podbean.com where you can find our Apple podcast links our YouTube and Facebook links join the Facebook group that's the best way to find out what's coming up on the podcast but I'm going to tell you right now next episode is going to be the uh, Jay Deering on our Facebook group requested the host of Jack Built the uh, recent uh, Lars von Trier
2: movie Okay, so we're going definitely into left field we're doing that one okay nice (laughs) Let's do something really lighthearted, Lars von Trier. Yeah. That's yeah. <laughs> so this should be an interesting one. Let's, so... watch, let's watch four hours of emotional torture porn for next week. How does that sound?
1: Like, yeah, uh, why not? <laughs> but
2: uh yeah, until we, then, you thanks. you know we appreciate it, Jay. It's not it's not meant to be a, a negative there. It's just like, oh yeah, great. We we just finished talking about the clan. Now, <laughs> you know, Lars von Trier. Nice change of piss. <laughs>
1: So uh, thank you, Daniel, and uh, thank you, everyone, for listening, and we'll be back when we're back. Goodbye. Cheers. have been listening to they must be destroyed on site for other episodes our links to apple podcasts youtube and our facebook group as well as links to podcasts and websites of similar interest please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com thank you drive through